please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique, that's spelled S-A-I-V, is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there are always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options. Shop Pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to DoorKey listeners. Just enter the code DOORKEY, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Save Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount at checkout. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Save Boutique, that's S-A-I-V Boutique.com, has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello. This is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me and are important. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history. And I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past, and I'd like to share what I've learned, and my opinion about what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. Lizzie Borden was an American woman who was tried and acquitted of the axe murders of her father and stepmother on August 4, 1892, in Fall River, Massachusetts. No one else was ever charged in these murders, and Lizzie spent the rest of her life in Fall River. She died of pneumonia at age 66, just days before the death of her older sister, Emma. The Borden murders and trial were huge and widely covered in the U.S. These murders and trial are still a topic in culture today. Lizzie was born July 19, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her father was Andrew Borden, and her mother was Sarah Borden. Andrew grew up modestly, but grew wealthy by making and selling furniture and caskets, and then he became a successful property developer. He was also a director of several textile mills and owned a lot of commercial property. He was also president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. When he died, his estate was valued at $300,000, which is about $9,630,000 today. 
Despite his wealth, Andrew was well known for being frugal. For example, his home didn't have indoor plumbing, although at the time that was a common thing for the wealthy to have. His home was in a nice area, but not in the nicest neighborhood of the area. That area was known as the Hill. His home was closer to the industrial areas than the homes of the Hill. The armchair, internet psychologist in me, thinks his frugal ways were due to him growing up poor, but that's just my own opinion. Lizzie and her older sister Emma had a relatively religious upbringing, and as a young woman, Lizzie was very involved in church activities. She even taught Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States. She was also involved in the Christian Endeavor Society, where she served as secretary treasurer. She was also involved with the Women's Christian Temperance Union and a member of the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission, a group that brought fruit and flowers to sick people in the hospital and to poor people at their homes once a week. Unfortunately, Lizzie's mother, Sarah, died of what's listed as uterine congestion and spinal disease when Lizzie was about three. Three years after her death, Andrew married a woman named Abby Gray. Lizzie later wouldn't comment on what her relationship with her stepmother was like, but she did say that she called her Mrs. Borden and that she believed that Abby had married her father for his wealth. So I don't think I'd be too out of line by saying that it doesn't seem like they got along very well. The Borden family had a live-in maid. Her name was Bridget Sullivan, but they called her Maggie. I'm not exactly sure why they called her Maggie, but that was the name of the maid that they had before Bridget. Side note, Bridget had been working for the Bordens for three years by the time of the murder, and they were all still calling her by the wrong name, Maggie. She would later testify that the girls rarely ate meals with their parents. In May of 1892, there was a fight in the family. Lizzie had built a roost for some pigeons in their barn, but Andrew killed them with a hatchet, saying they were attracting local children to hunt them, which really upset Lizzie. The truth behind this story has been disputed, so I'm not sure if it's true or not. What I do know is that there was an argument in the family that caused both Lizzie and Emma to leave for New Bedford for a while. In fact, even after coming back to Fall River a week before the murders, Lizzie chose to stay in a local rooming house for four days before returning to the Borden house. It seems that tension had been growing within the Borden home in the months before the murders. A big source of this tension was over the fact that Andrew gave real estate to members of his wife Abby's family. After they found out that their stepmother's sister received a house, Lizzie and Emma demanded and received a rental property, which they purchased from their father for one dollar. A few weeks before the murders, they sold the property back to their father for $5,000, which would be just under $160,000 today. The night before the murders, John Morse, who was Lizzie and Emma's maternal uncle, visited and was invited to stay for a few days to discuss business matters with Andrew. I'm bringing this up because it's been speculated that they may have argued over the property that was transferred to Abby's family. Something else I'm going to bring up, not because I think it's a factor in the murders, but because I think it's just one of those strange things that happens with timing in life. For several days before the murders, the entire household had been seriously ill. And, apparently, 
Abby feared it was poison because Andrew was unpopular, but there had been meat left on the stove for days that the family was eating their meals from. And maybe I'm an optimist, but it makes sense to me that meat that had gone bad would be the reason they'd all be ill, not poison. Side note, Andrew was not a popular guy in Fall River. He was known as a pretty dour, unfriendly man and had made many enemies in the business world. So while I don't think poison was involved in this illness, Abby wondering if that was the case wasn't as far-fetched or out of the blue as it might at first seem. So John Morse arrived in the evening of August 3rd and slept in the guest room that night. After breakfast the next morning, where Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and the maid Bridget were present, Andrew and John went to the sitting room, where they spoke for nearly an hour. Morse left around 8.48 a.m. to buy a pair of oxen and visit another niece who lived in Fall River, planning to return to the Borden home for lunch at noon. Andrew left for his morning walk sometime after nine. Although the cleaning of the guest room was one of Lizzie and Emma's regular chores, Abby went upstairs sometime between 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. to make the bed. I'm going to try to be sensitive and respectful here, but according to the forensic investigation, it appears Abby was facing her killer when she was attacked. She was first struck on the side of her head with a hatchet, causing her to turn and fall face down on the floor. Her killer then struck her multiple times. When Andrew returned at around 10.30 a.m., his key failed to open the door, so he knocked. Bridget went to unlock the door. Finding it jammed, she uttered a curse. Bridget would later testify that she heard Lizzie laughing immediately after this. She said that she didn't see Lizzie, but stated that the laughter was coming from the top of the stairs. This was considered significant, as Abby was already dead by this time, and her body would have been visible to anyone on the home's second floor. Lizzie later denied being upstairs and testified that her father had asked her where Abby was, and she had let him know that a messenger had delivered Abby a message asking her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie said that she then removed Andrew's boots and helped him into his slippers before he lay down on the sofa for a nap. This detail is contradicted by the crime scene photos, which show Andrew was actually still wearing his boots. Side note, I've seen these pictures, and he is wearing his boots, but you'll have to either trust me on this, or Google the pictures for yourself, because I won't be describing them here, or sharing any of those pictures on the Dorky Facebook group or Twitter, because, I mean... Bridget also said that Lizzie told her about a sale that a store in town was having, and suggested she go. But Bridget wasn't feeling well, and went to her bedroom to take a nap instead. Bridget would testify that she was in her third-floor room, resting from cleaning windows, when just before 11.10 a.m., she heard Lizzie call from downstairs, Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Andrew was on a couch in the downstairs sitting room. He'd been struck with a hatchet-like weapon. It appeared that he had been asleep when attacked. His wounds looked like the attack had been recent. Dr. Bowen, the family's physician, arrived from his home across the street and pronounced both victims dead. Detectives estimated that Andrew's death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. 
The answers Lizzie first gave to the police officer's questions were, at times, strange and contradictory. She first reported hearing a groan, or a scraping noise, or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told police she had heard nothing, and entered the house not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked by the police where her stepmother was, Lizzie again said Abby had received a note asking her to visit a sick friend. But she also said that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Bridget and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. Some of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they didn't like her attitude, that she was too calm and poised. Despite their feeling about Lizzie's bearing and her changing stories, nobody checked her for bloodstains. Police did search her room, but it was a cursory inspection at best. At the trial, they admitted to not doing a proper search because Lizzie was not feeling well. They were later criticized for their lack of diligence. Lack of diligence is quite the understatement, but that's the phrase that was used, so I'm going with it. The police found two hatchets in the basement, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon, as the break in the handle appeared fresh, and the ash and dust on the head appeared to have been deliberately applied to make it look as if it had been in the basement for some time. However, none of these tools were removed from the house at that time. Because of the illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk, as well as Andrew's and Abby's stomachs, were tested for poison. None was found. There is talk that Lizzie tried to purchase hydrocyanic acid in a diluted form from the local drugstore. Lizzie said that she did ask about buying that, but it was to clean her seal skin first. Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell, decided to stay with them the night following the murders, while Morse spent the night in the attic guest room. Police were stationed around the house that night, which would have been August 4th. One of the officers on watch said he saw Lizzie go into the cellar with Alice Russell, carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which Borden returned alone. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared she was bent over the sink. On August 5th, Morse left the house and was surrounded by so many people, police had to escort him back to the house. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and, at last, confiscating the broken-handled hatchet head. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. The next morning, the friend that stayed the night, Alice, entered the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. She told Alice that she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether that was the dress she'd been wearing on the day of the murders or not. Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute that said that an inquest must be held in private. She had been prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves because 1800s medicine 
and it's possible that her testimony was affected by this. Her behavior was described as erratic, and she often refused to answer a question, even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She also often contradicted herself and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question, such as saying she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father arrived home, then saying she was in the dining room doing some ironing, and then saying she was coming down the stairs. This is also when she said she removed her father's boots and put slippers on him when, like I said before, police photographs clearly show him still wearing his boots. On August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony was later ruled inadmissible at her trial in June of 1893. Newspaper articles from that time said that Lizzie possessed a, quote, stolid demeanor, calm, dependable, and showing little emotion or animation. Thanks, Google. It was also reported that the testimony provided in the inquest had, quote, caused a change of opinion among her friends who have heretofore strongly maintained her innocence. The inquest received a lot of press attention nationwide, including a three-page write-up in the Boston Globe. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd. Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford starting on June 5, 1893. Prosecuting attorneys were Jose M. Knowlton and future U.S. State Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Attorneys for the defense were Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Five days before the trial started, so June 1st, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. This time, the victim was Bertha Manchester, who was found dead in her kitchen. There were a lot of similarities between the Manchester murder and the murders of the Bordens. However, a man named Jose Herrera de Mayo was later convicted of Manchester's murder and was determined not to have been in Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. A major part of the trial was the hatchet head found in the basement, which the prosecution wasn't able to prove was the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. One officer testified that a hatchet handle was found near the hatchet head, but another officer contradicted this. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Alice Russell testified that she had seen Lizzie burn a dress in the kitchen stove on August 8th, saying it had been ruined when she brushed against wet paint. During the course of the trial, defense never attempted to challenge this statement. Lizzie's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Bridget entered the second floor of the home at around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that, at this time, she went into the barn, ate some pears, and was not in the house for, quote, 20 minutes or possibly a half hour. Heyman Lubinsky testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie leaving the barn at 11.03 a.m., and Charles Gardner confirmed the same. At 11.10 a.m., Lizzie called Bridget downstairs, told her Andrew had been murdered, and ordered her not to enter the room. Lizzie sent Bridget to get a doctor. At one point, as the things weren't wild enough in the courtroom, 
The prosecution had Andrew and Abby's skulls admitted as evidence and presented them in court. Upon seeing them in the courtroom, Lizzie fainted. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, who had been appointed by one of the defense attorneys, George D. Robinson, when he was governor, delivered a lengthy charge to the jury that supported the defense before it was sent to deliberate on June 20th. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie of the murders. Upon leaving the courthouse, she told reporters she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world. The trial of Lizzie Borden was such a big deal at the time, it's been compared to the later trials of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg or O.J. Simpson as far as publicity and public interest. It truly was the trial of that century. Although she was acquitted at her trial, Lizzie remains the prime suspect in the murders of her father and stepmother to this day. But she's not the only suspect. Another person to consider is John Morse, Lizzie's maternal uncle, who rarely met with the family after his sister died, but had slept in the house the night before the murders. According to law enforcement, Morse had provided a, quote, absurdly perfect and over-detailed alibi for the death of Abby Borden. He was only briefly considered a suspect by police, which I don't understand. Another possible suspect is Bridget. She definitely had opportunity. And I don't understand where she was when Andrew came home. If she was really sleeping in her room on the third floor when he came home like she said she was, wouldn't she have seen Abby's body in the guest room on her way downstairs? As for motive, maybe she was upset that none of the Bordens had bothered to learn her correct name in the three years she had worked for them. I kid, but still. Her name was Bridget, not Maggie. And then we have Emma. I've hardly talked about her at all. She was in Fairhaven when the murders happened, which is about 15 miles, that's 24 kilometers, from Fall River, so her alibi is solid. But it's been suggested that she might have secretly gone back to the house to kill her parents, then returned to Fairhaven to receive the telegram informing her of the murders. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large, modern house that was located in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth A. Borden. At their new house, which Lizbeth named Maplecroft, they had a staff that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, by law, her estate went first to Andrew and then, at his death, passed on to his daughters as part of his estate. However, a considerable settlement was paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Lizbeth's name was brought to the public eye again when she was accused of shoplifting in 1897 in Providence, Rhode Island. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lizbeth had given for actress Nance O'Neill, Emma moved out of the house, and the sisters never saw each other again. Lizbeth died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927 in Fall River. Funeral details were not published and few attended. Nine days later, Emma died at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. The sisters, neither of whom had ever married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. So all of the Bordens are buried together. In her will, Lizbeth left a large amount of money to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, as well as money in trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. 
The Borden House still stands and is now a museum and operates a bed and breakfast with 1890s styling. Pieces of evidence used in the trial, including the axe head, are preserved at the Fall River Historical Society. The case was memorialized in a popular skipping rope rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. In reality, Lizbeth's stepmother suffered 18 or 19 blows. Her father suffered 11 blows. The rhyme has a less well-known second verse. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. So, did Lizbeth do it? If not, who did? I hate this answer as much as, if not more, than you do. And that answer is, we'll probably never know for sure. In the episodes about Jack the Ripper's victims, I talk about how frustrating it is to me that we'll probably never get an answer to that case, and literally compared it to the Lizzie Borden and Black Dahlia cases, in that I think it being an unsolved mystery is part of the appeal to the story. There are many theories as to what really happened or didn't happen that day. Some definitely make more sense to me than others, but unfortunately, no official answer to this mystery has been found. I know, it sucks. As for me, I will go on record saying that I think it's quite possible Lizbeth did it. The police work at that crime scene was horrible, so there's hardly any evidence. That's not meant as a slight on the police, by the way. If anything, it's a slight on the science and investigation techniques of the 1800s, which, I mean, they just didn't know any better. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that if something like this happened today, they'd probably have it solved. Not only do we now have the science to determine who did it, but if Lizbeth had been the one who committed the crime, we'd actually convict her for it now. What I mean by that is that the attitude in the 1800s was that a woman wouldn't or couldn't commit a crime like that. So, if she did do it, this would be an example of one time that the patriarchy actually benefited a woman, which, gross. As a fan of true crime, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the almost throwaway line I said earlier about there being another axe murder in the area that was just as vicious and very similar to what happened to the Bordens while Lizbeth was being held in jail. I mentioned that they convicted a man for that crime, and I can't be the only one who immediately thought, wait a second. I'm not saying that I think that guy killed the Bordens. He wasn't even in the area when that happened, remember? But I do wonder if they got the wrong guy when they convicted him for killing Bertha Manchester, and wonder if the person who did kill the Bordens also killed Bertha. I'll be honest, I have nothing to base this on, just a healthy mistrust of the 1800s justice system to have gotten it right. So that's the Lizzie Borden case. I promise I'm not turning this history podcast into a true crime podcast. I just thought this would be an appropriate subject to talk about during the October Spooktacular. Yep, still going with that name. I'll be returning to regular, not spooky history in November. Some of the sources I used for this episode, History.com, Britannica, LizzieBorden.com, and Wikipedia.
So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at dorkypod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong. Or let me know if there's something in particular in history you'd like me to talk about. There's also a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast. Join it and be part of our community. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow. But more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. Friends.